0: He's Akili Naziri. I'm Reggie Bailey. This is Books of Pop Culture. Akili, how you feeling?
1: Um. Well, you know, uh, I, you know, back then, <laughs> I remember when people were talking about, you know, my hair not shaking. But I mean, it, as it's obviously uh, shaking now. It's getting longer and longer uh, episode to episode. I can't wait to see what it looks like <laughs> when I actually go and get a retwist later on. But uh, other than that, I had a real work day today. I've been working all day, uh, but I, I survived um, and thrived, and so I'm feeling pretty good. How about yourself?
0: Hey man, um, I'm I'm well. I'm well. I can't complain, man. I'm. Um, I, th- I think that'll that'll do. I don't know if I can compete with everything mm. you just said and did, mm. um, but but I- I'm well though. Um, yeah. Thank you to the fellowship, first and last time viewers, first and last time listeners and everyone in between, because you could be anywhere in the world right now, but you are here with us and we do not take that lightly. So thank you. We truly appreciate you. There are like too many places where you can locate books of pop culture. One of them is YouTube. There's also Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher. There's several other places I didn't name. And, and at those locations, you can do things we like, such as subscribe, follow like, comment, download, leave a review. And of course you can share. You can share with your friends, your family, your frenemies, your enemies, and of course your digital communities. You can do it publicly. You can do it privately. You know, word of mouth is a beautiful thing. It was a long time before some of the biggest businesses I ever saw, right, or I've ever consumed with, like, were seen on a commercial, right? So just spread the word however you feel comfortable spreading the word because it all helps trust. Um, Man. Make sure you also visit books of because everything books of pop culture lives there. The fellowship, which is our amazing Patreon community, lives there. Um, the days, which is our amazing newsletter, also lives there. Killy, we're about to have a good show tonight, a good fun show tonight, man. Oh yeah, oh yeah, real good fun, real good fun. I'm excited. Yeah, no, me too, me too. Tonight we're speaking with a novelist, essayist, and scholar. His latest novel, The Confession of Copeland Cain, was the winner of the 2022 Northern California Book Award. His essays have garnered the 2022 National Arts and Entertainment Journalism Award in Music, Theater, and Performing Arts, and the 2021 Folio Eddie Award. His debut novel, Brother and the Dancer, received the James D. Houston Award in 2012. He serves as coordinator of the Steinbeck Fellows Program at San Jose State University and guest editor and is a contributing scholar for the Oxford African American Studies Center our guest today is Keenan Norris and we'll be talking to him about shy boy after this quick break you uh, you uh, what a day to be a law-abiding citizen man what a day what a day oh man feels good to just be here just doing yeah, right and doing the right thing. being a, being a good citizen here with Keenan mm-hmm. norris
2: amen you know
0: yeah thank you Keenan for for joining us today uh really really appreciate it
2: yeah my pleasure thank you for the invitation um i really appreciate it the the first question is
1: how are you doing genuinely? And by genuinely, we mean if you know, if if you got trapped gas, let us know. If, <laughs> if you know you're having a, a hot day, let us know. But if you're having a, a cool if you had a cool beverage earlier and your day's really just
2: been uh, sugar and sprinkles, let us know. So how are you doing genuinely, Keenan? Yeah, I, I appreciate that question, you know, because as a writer. Um, who cares about words. And I know y'all care about words. I, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of, you know, just when we fling around, you know, how are you doing? Oh, I'm okay. You know, when that doesn't mean anything. So I appreciate the nature of the question mm-hmm. I'm doing well. Um, you know, I, I teach at San Jose state university, um, in San Jose, California, as I believe Reggie said earlier, and I was on sabbatical last semester coming back starting to teach again it's a little bit of a you know shock I I, I was I had it easy for like six months yeah you know my life was easy and it's it still ain't bad but uh, uh um so I'm starting to acclimate after being back for a couple weeks um at work and it is getting interesting in a good way and slowing down uh in ways that I need so
1: okay good good
0: that is uh that's that's really good really good and um my favorite question to ask um you know what is the most important lesson you've learned about the business of writing or what are some of the most important lessons you've learned about the business of writing
2: mm. yeah um i mean that's a that's a really interesting question i have you know I think I've learned a lot of things about the business of writing through publishing different books and with different kinds of presses, university presses, small presses, getting rejected by big five presses and so forth. And I think that, you know, the persistence to, uh, persistence with, um, you know, through rejection, which every, you know, every writer knows that you have to go through rejection. That persistence is important, but also kind of a, like a versatile persistence um, that allows, you know, allows me as a writer to kind of view those rejections as opportunities to, you know, think differently about how my work can be marketed, how I can sell a book, etc. Et cetera. Um, I would say that's you know that's like one piece of it and also just sort of the black swan nature of popularity i've seen Mm -hmm. uh, you know i haven't got you know my work is not um you know at you know anything close to like a bestseller level or you know garnering that kind of attention but i have seen people reach that uh that sort of um popularity and Mm -hmm. You know, there isn't really an explicable, logical equation by which that can happen. And I think the publishing industry generally is looking for those kinds of equations. And that it it actually doesn't make sense. You know, the popularity popularity itself doesn't make sense. And so the kind of formula by which they try to achieve it isn't going to make sense either. So yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, That's 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 uh that's kind of that's really interesting. Like uh yeah, it it me and Reggie was having a conversation, um not necessarily about that, but about when we're talking about Sadiq Fafana and we're talking about like how there's a certain formula that 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 they kind of takes, right? Whether Mm -hmm. a book is good or not. And that's what that made me kind of think about what you were saying. Like, okay, even still, like the formula that they're looking for and the formula that I might be saying exists doesn't make sense at all, right, to a certain degree. Um, Yeah, so that's what that kind of made me think about. Because I was talking about, like, how social media is a part of that formula, right? Like social media presence, right? Um, And, and like, how someone interacts with that and what role that plays in the popularity. Um, Yeah, yeah, but... (sighs) Yeah, oh, man. Like I said, it just made me. It just made me think about it. Um, because even two people who, even two people who get the popularity, mm-hmm. they'll say that it wasn't just. It, it wasn't that my book is that much better than books like my book that sure. came out at the same time, right? Right. It's because of like effort, etc., etc. But even still, I think what you're bringing out is, I mean, that might not work, right?
2: Because we've seen mm-hmm. effort be
1: put behind a book and mm-hmm. still
2: not win awards, etc., etc. Sure. I mean, it could be uh, something shows up in the news the week before your book comes out. You know, I've seen that happen with Mm -hmm. in actually with like tragic instances. I mean, I can get into it if you want me to, but, uh, Mm -hmm. but I've seen that happen and send a book to the top of the New York Times bestseller list for two straight years. You know, I mean, you know, it it has nothing to do with the book itself. Mm -hmm. Not saying that uh, the particular book that I'm speaking about it wasn't good novel but Mm -hmm. yeah but it's um but that's not you know some sort of you know that's not reproducible yeah 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 Yeah. Mm -hmm. no
0: it 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 just makes me think of a lot right because um you know you got uh of course you know ping random house in, in the failed merger with simon and schuster right and one thing that the ceo at the time was saying is yeah, you know we're called Random House for a reason, and you know it's it's <laughs> mm-hmm. it's, it's random and yeah, all this other yeah. stuff, right? Yeah. And then you know you have like Clint Smith come on, who you know published in a small press before he was with Little Brown for How the Warriors Is Passed, and he's like, you know, hey, this this isn't magic, you know. He talks mm-hmm. about how you know they they backed me essentially, right? Mm-hmm. And um it is interesting because I'm pretty sure if we did like a random survey of all the books that get chosen for like Reese. All yeah. the books that get chosen for, you know, uh, Jenna or Oprah. Well, I think Oprah and Reese probably have a, maybe a higher conversion than Jenna, but do all those even make bestseller lists, right? Y- you know, and that's the thing. I was thinking, you, and you say point. no, right? And, and I was just thinking that too. Like, not all of them do, because to be honest, I can't even like rattle off a list of every book that gets that's chosen by question. them. You know what I'm that's saying? So question. that does kind of lend itself, right, mm-hmm. to the ceo saying hey it is a bit random
2: Mm because you mm -hmm. one
0: would assume yo if you got a name like reese you got a name like oprah backing you there's no way you're not going to be a bestseller but history says there's still a possibility that you won't
2: right yeah 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 and you know um one of my mentors uh you know a, a really good brother i met early on in my writing career proto writing career was omar tyree um who back in the nineties and two thousands was like one of the most famous black people in the country.
1: Yeah. 100%. And, yeah.
2: You know, and it's um, you know, it's been, it, it's been really interesting to um, learn from Omar over the years and to um, also, you know, hear about and read about his, his path from self-publishing, which is kind of like part, probably the most archetypal story of, you know, black self-publishing in the late 20th century uh, to like, m- you know, massive success. But, you know, then now we're in a different era, right? Um, where the kind, of, um, the kind of mechanisms of <clears throat> social media and so forth, as they, uh, as those, um, as, as like purveyors of popularity, all that's mm-hmm. changed, and so it you know it's just been really interesting for me to see that not just as a writer but as a kind of scholar of literature as well. So.
1: You know, oh. Bridget, I, I was just thinking, you know, by Keenan bringing up Omar, you remember the conversation we had earlier about like <clears throat> how many people would be aware of banned books? Yeah, I that was a uh, fly girl mm-hmm. was like that. That was an earthquake. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, well, of it yes. Of, of that, that is an earthquake of a book. And I remember thinking, like, just like, wow, it's everywhere, right? Like, I'm in school, right? And I'm like, it's everywhere. And that would be like one of those, like, if they had, if they tried to, which they did at my school, they were like, yo, yeah, I can't be reading that, just all with, et cetera, et cetera. And the only that only made us wanna read it more. But I wonder if banned books had more of a, a thing then, you know what I mean? Cause
0: that was everywhere. I mean there there was a little less competition for books is, was in the nineties when that came the, out. Mm-hmm. So you know books were you know shameless pop. plug a little bit, that right? Pop books were pop culture yes. even more so mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the nineties than they are now.
1: Yes, yep. that yep. was that was a bad um you know, sister soldier. Yeah. Um, whenever, those yep. are those are those were some earthquakes, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Can no, you real. provide your synopsis or elevator pitch of what Shy Boy is about and let us know the inspiration behind it?
2: Yeah. Um, so, what is Shy Boy about? Shy Boy it, um, could be defined as a book of essays or as a collective memoir of successive generations of Black migrants out of the South to Chicago and then out of Chicago thinking about Chicago as kind of the, not the only place that the book is set, but the primary place, the Mm -hmm. um, intellectual um, conceptual core of the book um, and kind of thinking about Chicago as a a place of transit and transformation for the men, the black men who are the center of the book, um, my grandfather and father, Richard Wright, and to a lesser extent, you know, Barack Obama, um, mm-hmm. also Frank Marshall Davis. Right? Mm-hmm. And so that's the, uh, you know, that's the basic elevator pitch. There's also, uh, you know, this whole element of the book that revisits Chicago in the 21st century. Um, and that takes a critical look at the, you know, the shy rap terminology um, Chicago's kind of debasement in the popular culture as, you know, nothing more than, you know, it's gang violence, um, and also trying to think about both that term Chirac and the, um, reduction of Chicago to its violence in terms that are, you know, really different from the way people usually talk about it, but instead, like, um, thinking about our, um, military aggressions abroad that you know mm-hmm. the term Chirac you know is literally um, you know, um applicable to um i'm thinking about how american street violence is is is, a, is um associated is is correlated with um with our um our foreign policy so i guess that's my long-winded uh elevator pitch in terms of how I, or what inspired me to write it, um, you know, I've really been um, thinking about how to talk about this, because really what inspired me were, were the deaths of two young brothers back in 2016. One of them I write about in the book, um, the murder of my of my cousin on New Year's Day 2016. And the other, is, you know, uh, was the, uh, brother of a, of a close friend. Um, I went to both funerals in the same week, uh, you know, about a week into 2016 and the dramatic difference between the two funerals because they're you know, people coming from two different faith bases, um, really stirred my, um, really stirred me to think about all the issues that, um all all the ways that even though these murders didn't occur in Chicago um, because Chicago was being uh placed in the you know by the by the mainstream media in this position is like being representative of um black on black violence all over the country all over the world um it kind of like drew me back to Chicago right and drew me back to um to my family's history in Chicago so yeah yeah
0: no um thank you thank you for that answer and um you know on on page 56 in the book you say you know this book is not his but i'll say you know butch norris who's your father Mm -hmm. um you know this book is not his autobiography but rather my attempt to stitch the story of my becoming from loosely linked men who came before me in a city that i have never called home so um Mm -hmm. You know, can you talk to us about the process of just keeping yourself honest and writing about a city that you've never called home?
2: Yeah, yeah thank you for the question. I mean, I think it's, um, you know, what I, what I want to say is that because I um, grew up with my father's stories, um, because I grew up with a you know really close relationship with my father, um, and because Chicago produced him in really profound ways, I was always fascinated by the city because I see Chicago as the, um, the kind of locative nexus of Black migration out of the South and thus us becoming an urban people all over the country. I was always fascinated by Chicago. Um, but I'm a Californian. Right. I was born in Southern California. I live right outside of Oakland, California right now. Um, I teach at San Jose State University. I've taught all over, you know, this state. And so, yeah, I mean, I just, you know, um, I just have to be honest in that way. I just, you know, plain say it (laughs) a couple of times in the book. Right. Um, You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with um, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with people writing about questions. You know, you have a question you're in some way. I think you need some kind of skin in the game. You need to have some kind of tie to what you're writing about that is real. Um, But I don't think that we need to limit ourselves only to what is most, you know, most easily at hand experiences, because if Mm -hmm. that's all we did, all of us would only have one book in us. Every writer would only write one book or they'd write the same book over and over. Right. And so that's not what I'm trying to do. Right. I'm trying to challenge myself. Um, you know, I, I did a lot of research. You know, I talked to a lot of people. Um, you know, I, I um, got fellowship money and, uh, you know, and so forth to go to Chicago and spend time in Chicago. And I ran into some hurdles. I can talk about this. You know, I ran into some hurdles with my research where. Like I, I, got a sabbatical back in 2016, and the first day of my sabbatical, I had a medical emergency. Ended up having to have lung surgery, and thus lost the fellowship. Had to then pay my own way <laughs> to get to, yeah, uh, to get to Chicago, and you know, and so forth. So I, I, I put a lot of time and effort, right, and money into into trying to make myself not an expert but the you know the um best writer i could be about the subject and the last thing i'll say about this is that the um uh one night I was in chicago talking to this uh talking to this brother who was uh you know um he worked for a community center in the west side um you know like a gang prevention violence mm-hmm. prevention center and he uh what did he say? He, um, you know, you, you know, you ask me like, you know, California, you know, it's warm out there. It's cold here. What are you doing here? And then, <laughs> you know, and, and later on, he said, you know, it makes so much sense. He said, you're looking for your father. Mm. You're looking for your father. Yeah. You know? And I hadn't even thought of it that clearly. And with that kind of distillation, and he brought that to me. Yeah, hey,
0: that's
1: heavy. That's heavy.
0: Yeah, no, and um, you know, I thought of like a couple things. Um, um, talking, right, um, first off, you know, all, all praise to you. I'm glad you know you're able to make it on the other side of your uh surgery. Um, yeah, it, it made me think I just saw the uh my Mahmoud Abdul Rauf uh documentary on Showtime Stan, right, and it made me think of how like. You know, he was saying I was working out so hard. I felt like I could die out there. And I thought about how, like, oh, shit, like, yo, Keenan put his life on the line literally for this motherfucking story. Like, you know, and mm-hmm. then, um, you know, which just makes you think of like where writers always say, like, I have to do this. Like, this is mm-hmm. this isn't on me. This is in me. Right. right. And then, um, you know, I just thought about I really like what you said about limits. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, because typically I associate that with fiction. I associate that with okay, hey, you you gotta you gotta go beyond your limits to like you know live within the mind of you know another character, right? Um and, and that's not to say I don't associate it with nonfiction, but I tend to associate it with fiction. And it's um it was just I I guess I wonder if you you how much fiction influenced you? So, so it turned into a mm-hmm. statement or, originally, right? But it turned into a question.
1: How, how, tell them that at all. Just tell them.
2: Yeah. <laughs> like, no. like,
0: um, how, how much does fiction influence that mindset Like, in bringing that to nonfiction, though?
2: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, there is this way that a lot of people, a lot of writers who come from academia, where like, like I'm in academia, but I was a writer before I was an academic. Right. Um, I think a lot of writers who come from academia, like they get some degrees and then they, you know, write a book to get tenure or whatever. Um, You know, I think they're a little further away from the kind of elemental understanding of writing as like a piece of yourself. I'm not saying they don't get there. I'm not saying that, you know, but I think they're a little further away from that. Um, and I think when you're a writer, you know, in the way that Omar Tyree's a writer, you know, in the way that you said Clint Smith is a writer, in the way that, you know, folks like that are writers, in the way that I have considered myself a writer, um, you know, there's a, uh, y- you definitely have to experience, you know, the process of writing as something that that you're emotionally invested in that is not just like an intellectual exercise you know i mean it's partly that but it's not it's not like primarily that um it, it just comes from somewhere you know deeper so yeah,
1: yeah i was just I mean. thinking um when you were talking about academia i was thinking about um like what at least like my experience with it what that entails when you're when you work when you when you decide on like that life's work right mm-hmm. and and what that means in terms of going to archives and then going to certain archives et cetera, that are all around the country where you can only get certain things mm-hmm. that's what I think about too when you when you talk about like giving that and and when you talk about I'll, I'll drop a, a little clue here um when you talk about uh, my my ooh, right um I think that about the hunger that we have where I'm from uh, mm-hmm. that'll be your first clue <laughs> as to where I'm from. Um, but, um, <laughs> yeah, um, I- I'll go in here for my first question. Uh, yet this uh, in itself is telling. The world discards living beings no matter how brilliant, no matter the originality of their designs and their records are rarely ever kept. Um, you know, those aren't my words, guys. Uh, I'll say that for the for the listeners. But you go on to speak directly to Joliet and, and Sable's memorialization. Mm-hmm and the way nobody in the city essentially knows their story. In what ways do you think this realization motivated you to capture your family's stories and the stories of the people and policies that influenced their trajectory across the United States? And also, how do you think this reality of the world's way with living beings affected the boy who would become the man who became your father's perspective to
2: one that rivaled the Stoics, as you say? I mean, that's a great... Double, you know, two part question. Thank you for it. Um, well, they called me the question god. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm i um, I'm gonna answer your question. I'm gonna go, go back and think about it later after this podcast mm-hmm. is over. Yeah, um, that's, that's great. Yeah, the, the, um, so I would say first, yeah, you know, thinking about those archives, thinking about going to the Beinecke uh, at Yale, and then to the Madden Library at Fresno State. Um, and, you know, the way, it, you know, it was a trip to to go to Beineke where Richard Wright's archives are, thinking that I was, you know, really doing something. I mean, you know, I'm from the West Coast, so I've, I've kind of got this idea the Ivy League is, you know, being a little bit above us and, you know, in terms of prestige and all that. And, you know, um, and then you get there and, you know, Richard Wright's papers are disintegrating ever so slightly, but in my hands because nobody has visited this literary you know tomb of his in so long um i just and and you know what was just pressing on my soul was like he doesn't belong here Mm -hmm. he doesn't belong here um i mean he's here for you know for various reasons that have to do with the that, you know, yells an enormous endowment, <laughs> but mm-hmm, it's, yeah. but that's, you know, that's not really his his home, right? Um, and maybe he has multiple homes, but um, but uh, that's not it. And so there's a way, and, and he's among the more famous, you know, people in general, the more famous black people who has ever lived. When we come to, you know, those of us, who, you know, who history doesn't record. Um, it's, you know, it, it is profound to think about how many, how many experiences, how many stories just die with us. And this is like, a, especially poignant with us as black folks, think about like the histories of, you know, the, the, the red summer and the massacres, which I, which I write about briefly because Wright wrote about it briefly yeah. in his autobiography, you know, and how that, those histories were intentionally suppressed um, but also weren't talked about amongst black people for so long, you know, or were talked about only around the edges, you know, mm-hmm. of our, of our discourse. Um, so I think there, um, is just something it, it we are in this process of redress of, of, of reclaiming a, a history, right. As a people, um, that has been suppressed, that's been denied, um, that's been lied on, and so that's like that. That's just part I feel as my, as a writer of my of my sacred duty, right? Yeah. Um, and then I think there's this other thing too, where so many folks just don't think that they're interesting. <laughs> you know, they just don't think that they're interesting. I, you know, and then you and then you hear about their life story, and you're like, wow, that's you know that, that that story could fill up three novels, you know, yeah. four documentaries. You know, like I, I have, I have relatives, you know, recently passed out here and in Chicago and other places, who like lived through <laughs> so many things. They lived through, they lived through World War II. They lived through the Panthers. They lived through, you know, the the crack era. They lived through Baracko to see Barack Obama become president. They lived to see damn donald trump become president you know um plus their own personal lives and you just say you know your life is interesting so it's like you want to validate people yeah you know yeah yeah you know
1: i think about you know time spent on the Rutgers plantation back home and and um you know that'll be your second clue (laughs) you know (laughs) But No, nah, I'm from Natchez, so I'm from where Richard Wright was born. Gotcha. gotcha. Uh yeah. <laughs> I couldn't pull that. I could just rock with the rookies. <laughs> I couldn't run with it. <laughs> but Yeah, yeah. So your book was 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 really speaking to me on that on that level of right.
2: Yeah. Well, um, yeah. let me see. I've got you know, half of my um grandparents were from Mississippi as well. Um mm-hmm. so um then my, my grandson's from Alabama, so
1: word. worry, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, big shouts big shouts and and you know speaking of right you know um something first off shy Boy definitely makes me want to revisit native son and black yes. boy which is been about seven years six seven years since i read um mm-hmm. but then also american hunger is is at the front of my mind right american hunger is at the front of my mind because something you illuminate in shy boy is the fact that American hunger is kind of like the true autobiography, right? I didn't realize, you know, black mm-hmm. boy is something like an edited version, you know, if you will. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I, walk, I would like for you to talk to us about this, the way American hunger, I guess, fed the appetite that lived within shy boy.
2: Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's that's a great question the way that it fed the um, appetite of shy boy. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, um, that book in its totality, you know, where, um, Wright Not only deals with the racism of Tennessee and Memphis, but, um, or, excuse me in, in Mississippi, but, um, also with, um, the racism that he in- encounters in Chicago and just the, you know, the American racial, um, schema of the time um you know that book uh really stood stands for me along with Invisible Man is like two arch- archetypal black male narratives of the mid-20th century um of the migration they deeply influence each other you know I mean I guess you know Wright influenced Ellison but um they you know they they really read a read on to each other in 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 um um dynamic ways important ways um and in terms of shy boy well what i what i saw was that Wright's story was representative of the first wave of black migration out of the south after world war one um after the racial massacres um or after some of them in into the north right and then that my family's migration after World War II was representative of the second wave and you also have the like populating of the south side and the population populating of the west side um, in these successive waves so um, so that's the you know the, the kind of structural thing so-
1: me and my co-host spent some time nerding out about uh, the work your book was doing prior to the show. It made me think something, uh, think about something that earlier part of your book made me think deeply about again. I've talked about my dissertation on the show, as most folks who might not finish a dissertation do, we like to talk about it more than we actually work on it. And I and I've spent time talking about the theories that undergirded social capital, weak ties, and uh, student development theories. However, what I haven't discussed. Is what I wanted to switch my dissertation topic to. Mm. We we talked a little bit about this, but what I love about Wright, uh, to some degree, is how he does belong to multiple places, <laughs> and how all of those places take pride in him, uh, with Chicago being one of the one of the foremost. You know, even <laughs> though I, you know, I think that Natchez, we sh- we should have a little more say <laughs> in there as well. But um, you discussed your initial walk through the archives of his papers, and you pondered. How many visits Wright has had there? Mm -hmm. You said, like you said earlier, that he's lonely and he's disappearing. Mm -hmm. And then you later speak of like Morrison's papers resting at at, uh, Princeton, Mm -hmm. so many other Black works and and the reasons for that, right? Um, In places where those works are placed where they don't particularly prize Black bodies, whether Mm -hmm. they be flesh, blood, or art what effect, this is what I was interested in studying, right, when they was just like, it would take too much time, but what effect do you think historically white archives have on Black consciousness and the way that we remember mm-hmm. like, those parts of our history?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that we, thank you for the question, I think the fact that we have to go to these, you know, predominantly white spaces in order to access our own history is... You know, just part of this larger, uh, unfortunate paradox. This, uh, you know, inequitable paradox that is, you know, part and parcel with like our our existence here. There's a, um, there's like a, a a a devil's bargain by which we, um, by which we access our history, by which we access a you know a living in this in this country, and it's it is. You know, like a series of compromises. Um, the, I, I think there's something particularly, particularly difficult about um, about accessing the archive, though, through through these institutions. Um, it, it places the, um, you know, the the, the status, the um, the the safekeeping of our history um in the hands of other people Um, it is you know uncomfortably close to um to the situation of um you know the 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 theft and the you know keeping of african african um sculptures and other um artifacts in the branley museum in paris um there's there there's a really uncomfortable um, corollary there So <clears throat> I'm not sure I can smoothly articulate it but um, but it does really speak to our um, the, 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 the the way in which you know our society is set up to um, you know to, to validate white institutions and to only validate us, or our history through like their uh, you know through their auspices
1: yeah yeah because i mean i think when we were talking earlier about like the weight like doing that type of work has on you i was thinking specifically about uh honore's work on phyllis wheatley mm-hmm. um phyllis wheatley peters right I, I think specifically about that and literally how she had to go all over like america to kind <clears> of <throat> put together um her portrait collection on uh Miss Wheatley Peters. And I think um, you know, one one part of the conundrum is right, like because I think about like Fannie Lou Hamer, right? Being down here in Mississippi and mm-hmm. my university I'm getting my PhD at houses like her oral histories and stuff like that, right? And it's a predominantly white institution. And I'm and I think to myself, but what if that was at all corner of Jackson State, right? Mm-hmm. You know, would that not touch us more and will we not be able to do more with it in the community? And mm-hmm. the but the flip side of that is well, those institutions don't have the resources right. to actually house those papers right? or house those oral histories, mm-hmm. um, which makes it problematic. You know, but, I, you know, that's something I I was like when I thought about it, I was like, yo, like they like you said, it is it is dangerously close to the same situation of that African art. Mm-hmm. Like all of those histories, like literally sitting in Europe. Um, And then it's interesting, too, the fact that, you know, it's usually relatives who who make that decision in america is what i would assume those <laughs> institutions would say it'd be like well you know the daughter gave them to us you know right. you know um well it
2: looks like hard. you know dr dr dre you know gave all that money to usc before he gave anything to this high school in compton you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nas, you know with the with harvard you know i mean it's yeah um it's i mean this essentially you know uh, institutional racism becomes internalized right and i'm mm-hmm. not saying that i'm not I, I, I mentioned those people but i don't mean to uh, call them out as being uniquely you yeah. know bought out or something that, that that's, not yeah, a, yeah, yeah. that's not my intention it is um, <clears throat> it, it is to signal you know just to what extent all of us even some of our freest and most creative and most talented minds which they both are um are are just so um you know it, it, it is so deeply a part of the way that um you know that we've come to be in this country um and it's it's something that uh, we want to try to repair again you know? yeah
0: yeah i'm inspired to ask this in part by a recent uh that my co-host made on another podcast shout real ballers, read. Um, where he talks about just the weight of intellectualism right and being a black intellectual right and then also this this uh, quote from shy boy where you say coming to the promised land chicago taking full measure of its horror and its glory he as in richard wright no doubt understood that he had no better option and you were talking about how he was the foremost you know Mm -hmm. black intellectual of the 1940s and how you Know he eventually paved the way for people to step in, like Ellison, you know, right. and Malcolm Morrison and Gates. Right? And yeah. can you talk about the weight of the black intellectual and how you wanted to
2: illuminate that weight? In my boy, mm-hmm. hmm. yeah, um, <clears throat> the weight of the black public intellectual, yeah. I mean, I think it is a that is a very um, it, that is a position that, um, has been much prized, much, um, you know, much debated and, um, and is incredibly difficult. Uh, you know, as I say in the book, um, black success in general is something that is, is highly complicated because it is, again, it is a, um, it is at its root, you know, a compromise with our power structure. Right. And that isn't, to you know, I don't mean that to, uh, like, um, you know, to, to talk badly about or look down on anybody who's successful in, in, you know, in like the kind of conventional material ways I, you know, I, I would be considered, you know, one of these, you know, people, you know, our whole existence in this, you know, in the, um, Western hemisphere is, was premised upon, um, the, the, the most predatory form of capitalism possible, right? Where we were the capital. Um, it's impossible, I think, for most black people to look at um, certain types of mainstream approval and success uh, without at least asking a question or two, you know, mm-hmm. along the way, you know, whose hand did you shake? What, how did you, How did you get here, right? And more deeply you know, just what are the uh, bargains that have to be made, um, the compromises that have to be made. I think the Black public intellectual <clears throat> steps into that like a hundredfold, right? Because they are, um, the, the, you know, they're situated toward the, the top of that, um, those those conventional markers of success. And then they're also in this position of, where they are um asked to speak you know to the american public about um you know uh, about black americans in this case as a whole as a group as as subgroups um asked to speak to um issues of black poverty violence uh, da, da, da 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 as well as um education and um you know and Uh, you know you know other things um i think it I, i think it is a position that is extremely fraught um that it is a kind of political position really that requires not just this compromise with like kind of mainstream america but also a lot of compromises internal to you know black community as well so you see like you know, if you look at the career of somebody like Martin Luther King, the political career of Martin Luther King, he's constantly um, going back to the SELC, constantly going back to SNCC and saying, look, I have to do this over here. You know, I have to I have to shake these hands over here so that we can <clears throat> get what we want over here. You know, um, you know, uh, in th- that is like the, you know, more than anything, you know, when I read, uh, you know, biographies of King. I see how calculated um, and how steely he was um, as a negotiator, you know, around these around these kinds of um, um, compromises, these 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 positions of compromise that that he constantly found himself in, and these public intellectuals that I cited, uh, you know, cited in the book, I think, were were and are in. You know roughly similar positions um their their responses to to being you know to to finding themselves in or to placing themselves within that position have all been different they're they're interesting uh you know it's kind of a dialectics of how do we get free um or how do we get successful um but uh yeah very difficult
0: yeah and um, you know, w- when you say that, right? I also want to mention of like Coates, right? I mean, even you know, uplift his his place in society as a black public. I should I got to mm-hmm. add that in there now. The black mm-hmm. intellectual, um, by mentioning even how it's for reparations becomes like this basis for like these you know um, you know, conversations like like on the hill. You you know what I mean? Yeah. Which is just something that just blows every time i even think about it
1: um yeah yeah i think i feel like coats like like gets out of there you know i feel like i feel like whatever coats is working on now like he he realizes what they were trying to do with him Mm -hmm. and he was like "Uh uh-uh like he, he bags out of this whatever he's working on now i'm really interested in reading because like 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 what i was talking about in that podcast i think there's a lot of weight um there's a lot of weight and we know what that weight does mm-hmm. you know when you when you think about some of those political figures we know what that weight does and what it can what it can become you know whether it's death or like the guy you were talking to that was talking about um jesse uh jesse jackson yeah. like you mm-hmm. know he's a chump right like you, <laughs> you can end up on that end right yeah. um so that's that's interesting because when you said that, Rich, I was just thinking about that. And I was like, "Yeah," and Coles got on down. I mean, not directly after that, but the the positioning that they were trying to do with him, you know, I think is contrary to who he is as an intellectual thinker. And and he saw it. You know, it's something I was thinking about. But you know, let's 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 flip this on his on its end um, and and go on, on another direction. Sometimes um, authors uh, see my tabs here. And, and they wonder uh, what they think I'm highlighting, right? And, and this is reminiscent of one of Lil Wayne's infamous mixtape lines where he says, and when I was five, my favorite movie was the Gremlins. Don't got shit to do with this, but I just thought that I would mention. Uh, and so it is with the first sentence that I uttered. But uh, however, I'd, I'd like to say this again for public, uh, there's no rhyme or reason to my tabbing. So they look <laughs> color coordinated. I am just a bit obsessed with using all of my tabs properly. And I follow the general color scheme of the tabs, but they always signify bars, similar to the Lil Wayne one. And one of the bars you spit that holds a tab is violence begets trauma and trauma remains and is inherited in one form or another. One of the things I've been thinking about since my early 20s is the destabilization of the street organizations in Chicago and, and what that did. You did a great job of not only discussing the power vacuum left by names like um, the old man, uh, Jeff Fort, um, mm-hmm. chief, as some of, some of my homies call him, and then the honorable chairman himself, Larry Hoover. Mm-hmm. But what I think your book really brought to life for me uh, is what the destruction of the project housing mm-hmm. uh, did to those gangs. Can you talk about the process of drawing that out and why it was important to showcase that it wasn't just about the power vacuum left by, you know, Barksdale and all those names, those larger than white mm-hmm. names. Uh, but it was also like this this concerted effort to destroy, um, mm-hmm. you know, some of those headquarters is like what mm-hmm. the, they used to call Gabrini Green, right? But like some of mm-hmm. those places um, that like really function as headquarters.
2: Oh, yeah. There is a book called The Promised Land from the early 90s. Um, forgetting the author's name, he's, he's a, like famous white sociologist, really good book. Um, about these black families moved from Mississippi to Chicago, and about and ended up in the projects. and I think, the Robert Taylor Homes. Um, mm-hmm. And in the coda to the book, he says, you know, um, writing in the early '90s when all the projects still stood, um, that these are some of the, you know, worst places in the world to grow up. And he, you know, he says that, you know, they're they're the living conditions are no better than in the You know, this is not a politic term anymore, but the quote unquote third world um, Mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, And so I remember reading that book, you know, when I was probably a teenager and um, and there's and so there was, you know, there was a real push from the on on many levels, from the wealth, you know, Clinton's welfare reform to a lot of other things to like break down what people saw as this um, Deeply ensconced, multi-generational poverty and like the kind of what they're talking about, like these like poverty mindsets and so forth. Um, and so knocking down the projects in Chicago and in Baltimore and some other places, we're all part and parcel with that. Um, you know, and, and that is what beget the gentrification that you see, you know, all over the country um, and really the, the kind of advent of the modern American city. Uh, really, really began with like, how are we gonna like move these, you know, how are we gonna reclaim downtown and the, the the major areas of these cities from, you know, the, this, you um, know, from this really ensconced poverty as symbolized by these housing projects. Um, the kind of unintended consequences or whatever of that include the dispersal of the, the gang culture that gang cultures that some oftentimes were, you know, deeply concentrated in a certain housing project. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and, and like, you know, you talk to like anybody in Chicago, they'll tell you that. Right? I'm not like breaking yeah. here. Right. Yeah, and yeah. so it, um but what I saw um, about it was that it was so, uh, I could draw such a really strong corollary with our, uh, foreign misadventures and how, again, you know, shai rack Chicago, Iraq, the and both these places that are, have multitudes of people living their lives get melted down to just the violence that, you know, in the popular imagination uh, begins to characterize them. And how, you know, if we were to, instead of just criticizing that, I do criticize it, but instead of just criticizing that, if we were to draw it out a little further and say, okay, like, where is the real connection here? Well, I mean, part of it is that, you know, you go and, you know, blow up Iraq, you know, invade Iraq, and then what happens? You get, you know, years and years of internal ethnic conflicts, religious conflicts, um, that had been suppressed by the, um, you know, by by this institution. In that case, the government, right? Um, and in all these just, you know, things that weren't understood by the, um, you know, by the invading American military, or in the American case, right in the hood by um, these social theorists and by law enforcement and whomever else, you know, real estate companies, um, yeah. you know, it, it really eventuates in the same thing, um, you know, and so that's really what I, um, you know, what what I, what I, uh, what it made me think about. So, yeah, I mean, there, there, I think there are some, I, 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 and I you know, I, what I will say is I don't think every, um I, I think there are good things and bad things that came from mm-hmm. you know the projects getting knocked down um or, you know on state street and um cabrini green and so mm-hmm. forth but uh yeah but that's definitely one of the uh, one of the major negatives yeah yeah
1: that, that was uh that was a uh, that portion right like talking about that and the making the correlation of like what this interference or interruption does right on those on on those streets and on streets abroad right mm-hmm. um is 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 the better correlation than the correlation of trying to just call a shot and i thought that was a, a really good thing that you did there um and of course you you know you make you know for viewers who are who are looking you make um it plain that just having them concentrated in those areas of course is not good as well but you're destabilizing something that now it looks really difficult to try and corral. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's you know, it's gotten so large. Of course, that doesn't mean I mean that that can be with a lot of things, right? Mm-hmm. But because of course it doesn't mean we don't stop trying and there are buckoos of folks with boots on the ground up there in the Chicago and other areas, right? <laughs> but it's 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 just a really difficult thing, uh, at this point. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And um I, I think this this question. Should kind of flow uh pretty cool mm-hmm. we're just at right um so from your book right from Shah, uh you say chicago is a place predicated on exactly this in self-definition and repeated remaking while the city has provided an important space for individuals to reinvent themselves people who have found that Shawtown itself as a city as a network of industry and power and a warehouse for the poor is deeply resistant to fundamental change. This is most obvious in the cockroach endurance of the city's patterns of residential segregation, but Chicago's intractability extends to its corrupt political culture, as well as the problems with organized crime and street violence that have burdened it for more than a century. It is no secret, just the first sentence of the next paragraph, is no secret that the poor in America have been thrown to the dogs, right? Right? And, you know, when when I thought about what you were saying, I thought about the shape shifting. Right. I thought of the shape shifting nature of not only someone like, you know, Barack Obama, whom, you know, you essentially say like, hey, without that time in Chicago, he probably doesn't go on to become, you know, the president. Right. right? I think about what Chicago meant to Richard. Wright, You know, um, you know, I think about even just gentrification. And, and as I'm speaking to you, I think of how people just shape shift even when they go somewhere like New York or L.A. Right, I feel like we have probably mi- like myriad stories of people who went to New York and went to LA and kind of did similar things, like you know the three people whom I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just talk to us about the way that the city itself and the people just shape shift so much, and just mm-hmm. like I guess the the pros yeah. and cons of that?
2: Mm. Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. I um, yeah. Um, the yeah I, I, again you know Chicago as this center of transformation as this thoroughfare the you know the literally sitting on one of our continental divides um, and the central most continental divide right in North America um, becomes for me this symbol of of transition of transit and transition and change. Um, at the level of movement, but also at the level of the personal. Um, Yeah, you know, Richard Wright changes tremendously by the fact that he goes to Chicago, right? I don't think Richard Wright becomes a writer, uh, certainly not a writer of the caliber, nor the, um, you know, having the connections, and that's the popularity, you know, the success, if he he stays in the South. You know, I don't think that will happen, would have happened. You know, I would have been... Uh, you know, my my dad and thus myself. You know, we would have been uh, profoundly different if, you know, my gramps, um, crazy gramps, hadn't you know moved the family to Chicago, right? And for well and for ill, but you know it. Um, but it profoundly changed us. The um, and I think it was necessary, right? Um, you know. It, it's a different thing. The South has changed a lot. I'm not speaking about the South as it is today, and I, I know that you know a lot of folks get sensitive when we kind of um, talk about the South as it was and how, as Black Northerners and Westerners, oftentimes figure the South. Um, and so I, I, I want to like make clear that I'm not talking about the South today, but um, the South as it was, you know, um, you know, before the Civil Rights Movement and so forth. Um, you know, didn't just simply wasn't going to allow Black people to, you know, to spread our wings and to be, to to kind of take control of our destinies to a greater extent, you know, rise or fall, right, succeed or fail, it is better that we have have that opportunity in these cities, even if these places become, as, you know, all of them have been for many Black people, sites of destruction, it is still better, you know, for us to have, taken our destiny in our hands than not to. I mean, that is, that is my, my belief. So in many ways, you know, Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, Oakland, these places have been crucibles through which we passed, but they're, you know, they're, they're, they're necessary and they did change us. Um, Yeah. You know, Barack Obama, in my opinion, definitely doesn't become president if he'd stayed in LA or if he'd stayed in New York, right. He had to go to a center of black power and, LA's definitely not a center of black power <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and New York, maybe to a greater extent, but it's too, it's, it's Chicago much more, because it's a much more cohesive black community there. Yeah. Um, and so that, uh, um, you know, so, so that's something that I think about um, when I think about the shape shifting um, and how important it's been for us as black folks to shape shift, right? Because we're, the the shape the place that we were given in this country was so um, disregarded our humanity to such a great extent like we needed to change to change we needed to embody these ideals of you know America as a place of re- you know redefining oneself and all that um, <clears throat> which you know it, you know it, the society was set up to not allow us to redefine ourselves <laughs> at all and so um, the the extent to which Uh, people like Richard Wright faced with such tremendous odds did that to me as a tremendously heroic act. Um, You know, for whatever their faults, you know, somebody like my grandfather, for whatever his flaws, that is a tremendously heroic act to me. Um, And then Chicago as a shape-shifting space. So, I mean, (laughs) Jim Crow to James Crow, right? Um, James Crow to 21st century, oh, you know, slide in this gentrification and you know and still kind of you know push you around and so forth the other aspect of american capitalism that you know capitalism is incredibly adaptable um and it is um you know it allows some measure of conciliation with uh you know with the groups that it oppresses which is you know most people and so i think that Um, that there's, that there's a way that Chicago as one of the major centers of one of the major economic centers in the world um, really exemplifies the, um, the shape-shifting nature of, 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 of a certain level of oppression, right? Of, it's like a, a gradation of oppression. So and you said marriage and
1: migration uh had changed her. The city and its traumas had changed her. And unbeknownst to anyone, she was ready to make a, a, a large decision. It's one of, my, mm-hmm. one of my favorite parts of the book. Yeah. Um, how does marriage and migration change um you know Grams and you know, just all of the characters that are married right in the story? How does marriage and migration kind of change them? And how does the subsequent well change? Ah, uh, Gramps, right, and others, and then the subsequent migration that occurs after um, mm-hmm. she comes into her intuition. How does it change uh, your grandfather, right? Right. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, my Gramps was, as my father would say, your Gramps was a wild boy, right? Yeah. And and he he was mostly for the worse, right? But um, he um, so so how does the change change him? I, I think first I should say that um, that. That you know, my grandmother, um, it, my, my my father really you know really loved his mother, um, and for good reason. And she was a very strong woman, and and did not deserve you know the um, yeah. the the way that she was treated, right? Um, and you know, and so many black women have been um, have faced not only oppre- you know the same oppressions that black men have in the wider society, but also have been oppressed within the home. And Mm -hmm. that is, um, something that needs to be, you know, redressed as well in the here and now. Um, in terms of the way it changed him. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, marriage is a set of, um, it's, it's a, it's love and it's union and it's compromise, you know? And I think eventually he had to compromise. Um, and I think that, you know in, in certain ways that marriage allowed my grandfather to have you know um to 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 it allowed him to live the best parts of himself you know it, it mm-hmm. brought out some of the worst parts of himself but it allowed him to live out some of the best parts of himself to be a man who supported a family right i mean he's a very hardworking man right it allowed him to do that um it allowed him to, to reunite his family, right. To give the opportunity to do, to do that. So it ultimately, you know um, it ultimately was a good thing that, that, that um, I don't want to like, say it like civilized him or something. I I think that's, Mm -hmm. I think, I think that's going too far, but it, but it, um, but it allowed him the opportunity to, 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 be a better version of himself. To be the best version of himself. Um, I don't think that any of us is always the best version of ourselves. Um, but I think that, you know, I think that, you know, that if we're lucky enough, we get opportunities. You know, especially in relation to other people who care about us, we get opportunities to, to, you know, to rise, to, to, yeah. to you know, to be the better versions of ourselves. And he was lucky enough to to get a, a couple cracks of that. You know? Yeah.
1: I thought I thought, you know, that was the most that was the most gangster thing in the world, his <laughs> response to uh to that. You know, and it's, it's something that I would have done. <laughs> and, and it's funny because too, now that I think about it, you know, he had been up drinking all night, right? Mm-hmm. Prior.
2: that. To- <laughs> <And Yeah>. just- <laughs> For the audience Achilles <laughs> talking about when um uh, you know, when my granny uh, um, decided to, you know, take the family, take yeah. her daughters and leave and go to California because he was, you know, messing around on her and yeah. with other yeah. women. And she said that, you know, he, my dad would go and live with his track coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, he, the, my grandpa said, nah, I'm, you know, we're going to stay together. And he you know didn't let my dad move in with his track coach. And he, yeah, um, I don't know. that's Listen. I felt you know, that.
1: And I don't. Yeah. I don't care how bad I, I've been. If my <laughs> wife told me that sh- my son, we call him Shucky, will be getting <laughs> raised by his basketball coach I don't
2: think <laughs> the same.
1: Yeah. The hell wrong yeah. with you? You think I'm going yeah. right. to <laughs> raise my son? <laughs> get in the car. <laughs>
0: yeah, absolutely not. <laughs> yes,
1: right. yes. So I. I don't think. I don't think. Uh, <laughs> readers, when you read it, I don't think you'll. You'll kind of get that, and I think you're right to kind of like ponder of like the proper mm-hmm. word is not mm-hmm. to be civilized right now i like how you said it's really like you know your grandma doing some work on him ultimately mm-hmm. right um but but it's a it, it it's a it's like uh ricky bobby you know time to be a man you know what right. are you gonna do
2: you know and, oh you know, yeah I like and, the response and you know like my gramps had you know definitely had his flaws but um but he's somebody who i respect i think that you know hopefully come through in the book mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. he definitely had some strengths as a person too you know as you're talking yeah. about like he he did stand up for his family when yeah. when he had to there um yeah. you know and so yeah i mean um and i think i think that there are so many black men and other men you know who um are flawed but who do have strengths and and, and need to be given the opportunity to, to, to flourish those strengths, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 And um, just, just to add on to what you were saying too, I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, what they say, fair and balanced, right. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you showed us, you know, uh, a, a little bit of all sides, right. And, and not right. even just with, you know, your dad and your gramps, but even, you know, like Richard Wright, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> like we see, yeah. we see some of his relationships. We see Ralph Ellison, yeah, you know, yeah, like, Ralph. uh, you know, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it's it's fair and balanced. And that's what I I'll speak for me. And I'm sure, you know, y'all y'all both might agree. Other readers might agree. Um, I know when I go to nonfiction, I'm not looking for like a, 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 I'm not looking for necessarily a celebration the whole time. I mean, you know, they do that at award shows and stuff like that. Right. You know, it's mm-hmm. a book. So I'm right. kind of looking for like that, that deep dive.
1: So. Right. Shout out to that boy, Ralph, man. I can't. <laughs> You know, big shouts to, to, shout to Ralph, man. Big shouts out to Ralph. <laughs>
0: hey, I'm, I'm definitely not gonna tell you all that on air. Y'all gotta read for that. Shout yeah, out. y'all gotta read. Ralph's <laughs> <was> a <laughs> wild
1: boy. <laughs> yeah.
0: y'all gotta y'all gotta read to understand that shout out, man. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> this
0: book is dedicated to my family and especially to my father, Calvin Pressor, who is the subject of much of this story. Without his stories, his love of literature and history, and his photographic memory. I would never have conceived of, let alone written this book. So I mean, obviously, I think we've we've spoken a lot about your yeah. dad um to you know tonight's um in tonight's conversation. Uh but nonetheless, this is a question as a part of the structure of the show. So I have to ask, um, how'd you wind up deciding to dedicate Child Boy to uh your father?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, you know, my father when I was 13 years old, um, gave me go tell it on the mountain by James Baldwin said, read this and you'll know more about who I am. Right. Then he gave me the the next year, um, native son. And he said, you know, read this and you'll know more about where I'm from. And so there's a way that, um, you know, literature, these books by black men specifically, uh, became part of the way that, um, I bonded with my father in the way that, um, that he taught me, you know, about how to see the world um, or, or at least some different ways of seeing the world and seeing um, our, our, our history as black people um, in America. And so I had to, um, it, not only is he, you know, you know, probably most prominent figure in this book, but really my relationship to literature itself, does spring from
0: him so. yeah yeah no that is um i, I one thousand percent agree and and i even like that you brought up the anecdote about um you know go tell on the mountain and native son because that was something uh as well our our what is it our pre pre conversation i guess the one we had before we even getting here we was talking about just um you know just family members do pass down uh literary habits right yeah. and, mm-hmm. and you know it's really cool that you bring that up again now um, the most interesting thing you researched that you end up including in Shy Boy. Ooh, well,
2: um, you know, definitely the, um, the the the, the city's founding by Jean Baptiste Pontus the Haitian fur trader, which is only which is one of three founding. You know, I learned not only about uh, that founding uh, fact, but also that our all three of our largest cities in America were founded by black people. Um, Jan Rodriguez, the Dominican um, uh, you know, uh, explorer um, in um, New York was the first non-native settler in the island of Manhattan. And if you look at the 1781 charter of El Pueblo de Los Angeles, 40 of the 42, um, the census, I should say, the 1781 census. Um, Forty of the 42 uh, original settlers of that city, or that pueblo, um, were non-white, and the majority of them were of partial or full African descent. Right. So, you know, we're we've been here a long time. We were here way before that, and hell yeah, yeah. And so, um, this the, we we have a deep claim to this country.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's one of the uh, more interesting, like, um, point of um, you know, one of my Hotepian. Uh, I used to say my Hotepian background, but the, this idea that we, we've been here for a while, like, just here, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, you know, people don't usually associate Morrison with like Kotepian stuff, right? And she edited um a brother Ivan I forget his last name but they came before Columbus oh, man. I believe yeah, yeah I was gonna a, say a edited work
1: if I'm not mistaken yeah it. so yeah the the those I was just gonna say that part of the Hottepian uh, literature <laughs> um was actually done by actual scholars like that part yeah like yeah. real live uh, born yeah. and bred scholars those so yeah yeah I have that back it's right there yeah I, I yeah. still have the still have the the Hotepian canon down there. <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean it's there's there's room for it honestly you know there's there's a lot of room for it um one of the best book read in the last calendar year
2: Ooh, one of the best books counter narratives by John Keane mm. mm, who just nice. won the national book award for poetry for a different one of his books yeah. punk's but um his his uh, book of short stories and novellas counter narratives
0: yeah so it, that was interesting because he won off of selected uh, poems, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, believe,
0: uh, I, yeah. Yeah. And that was like the first time I've seen that because I, I've seen, for example, um, award winners win for like collected, you know, mm-hmm. uh, books, uh, especially mm-hmm. with like short fiction, um, more so in the past than, than recently. Um, yeah. But when I saw that, I was like, wow, that's interesting that, you know, selected means like, yo, these, these not only – so collected, I'm going to say this for like listeners and, and, and readers, right? Usually collected means like a, a catalog, right? So mm-hmm. if I were to publish a book and it's called Reggie Bailey's Collected Stories, it's saying like, hey, this is every short story I ever published, right? Mm-hmm. Versus collected stories, which is like, yo, it ain't every story I publish, but these are the ones that I think, this is like right. my best of, right? Mm-hmm. And that was the first time I saw like a best of like mm-hmm. win a, a war like that. And I thought that was really cool when that happened. Yeah. Um, okay. so big shouts to that. Um, a book that you want Achille and I to read if we haven't already read it. Ooh,
2: um, let me see. Um, you know, there's so many books out there, but, uh, I do want to, um, speak to, uh, the residue years by Mitchell S Jackson. Um, yeah. all right. Which, you know, clearly Achilles y'all are probably are already familiar with it, but, um, yeah, you know, um, uh, really interesting Portland. Um, you know, I, I, I'm from California, you know, I didn't really grow up thinking about black people in Portland, where there would be a, such a thing as a Mississippi neighborhood in Portland. But um but yeah, Mitchell S. Jackson's a uh, great writer, great contemporary writer.
0: Yeah, yeah. no, for yeah. sure. Um yeah, that's that's one of the millions of books. This isn't a slight to the book, this is just me and my reading habits, but that's like one of the millions of books that I currently have a bookmark in. Um yeah, and, and so far. Where I've gotten with the bookmark, I've enjoyed. Mm-hmm. So now it's like yeah. you, Mitch Jackson, just, uh, you know,
1: I have a show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, I got priorities. So tell us who you would like to see as the guest on Books and Pop Culture, but um, if you are connected uh, with this person, then you must disclose your connection so that okay. we can be connected as well.
2: <laughs> um, it's right. Obama, isn't it? I knew it was Obama. <laughs> yes! Totally! I Barry! Know, I would, you know, and I, I, you know, I'm feeling kind of bad because I'm only uh, talking about black male authors here. And so maybe I should <laughs> go back and edit. So, but it, it has to be Howard French, who wrote Born in Blackness, um, Africa, Africans in the Making of the Modern World. Uh, last summer, that was just like my book, you know, it's like, you got like song of the summer, you know, this is my book of the summer. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, if y'all could get Howard French, I, I, I don't have a connection to him. He was the New York Times bureau chief over the Caribbean and West Africa for like 20 years um, I, I, I don't know like he's kind of my hero right now so
1: yeah yeah I'm gonna have to get that that sounds perfect for my uh for my little yeah that's, that's my wheelhouse
0: Hey, Howard French wrote a book about pre-colonial Africa like what in 2021 or 2020 right something like that mm-hmm. Yeah. so mm-hmm. yeah. yeah I've actually I've actually had like eyes uh, for his work yeah mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so the easiest question of them all, um, how can people, uh, you know, follow your journey like online, Um uh, whether mm-hmm. that's like website, social media, whatever. And also what can you share about what's next for Kenan
2: Norris? All right. Thank you. So, um, easiest way. Um, I'm also on Twitter, but barely you know, so I need to, I need to do something about that, Um, and in terms of what's next, well, I do want to say that just a couple days ago, um, TED-Ed went live with my um, work on David Walker, uh, both with an animated video and teaching materials on the TED-Ed website, Um, and so that's something, you know, I'm just continuing to do the work of the writer, Um, got two books, a nonfiction book, and a novel that I'm working on um there in the offing.
0: Nice. Okay. Well, well hey, I'm I'm looking forward to both. Uh, you know about. what I mean? And um, you know, once again, I, I thank you for you know accepting the invite up here to Books of Pop Culture. Um, it's definitely been, you know, fun just talking to you about everything that is contained in Shy Boy, which, you know, if you are listening, if you're watching, go and get yourself a copy. Um, and, and of course, we prefer you get it from bookshop.org slash shop slash books of pop culture um, for Kenan Norris and Achille, Missouri, I am Reggie Bailey. This has been another edition of Books of Pop Culture, and we will see y'all next time. All right. Peace. Peace.